Hey everyone, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors at the church, and we're jumping back into a series on why we do what we do when we gather. And so we looked at week one, why we gather. We looked at why we sing together. We looked at why we read and teach from the Bible. And today we're talking about why we invite people to give on a Sunday morning. You just heard Jason do it. And let me tell you my story. I became a follower of Jesus around 20 years old. And I grew up going to church, but I was not a follower of Jesus. And everything we're talking about in this series, I didn't like doing. I did not want to go gather as the church on a Sunday. I did not want to sing songs to Jesus. It's kind of weird. Like, I, I didn't want to read the Bible or hear it preached. And I was not one of those good church kids who grew up giving away some of their allowance to the local church. I stole money from my sisters to buy cigarettes. That's what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, if you had asked me for a smoke, I might have given you one, but that's about as far as I would take the generosity. And then I became a follower of Jesus, and I started doing things I'd never done before, like attending church, singing songs to Jesus. I started reading scripture and listening to preachers. It was wild. I loved it. And I remember attending Sunday gatherings, and they would pass an offering plate along the pews. It was part of every service. It was part of the liturgy. And so every week there would be this time where they would uh, play music and people would pass an offering plate. And I would just let it pass by. And I did not feel bad. As long as I didn't take anything out of the plate, it was progress for me, okay? So I didn't feel bad, I didn't feel guilty, I didn't feel pressure. But there was a moment where I started feeling like I should give. Again, I didn't feel pressured, I didn't have this emotional experience, I just made the decision to give. Eventually I heard from someone like, you should give 10% of your income to the church. And I delivered pizza, and I was a student, and I was a janitor, uh, but I started doing it. Like, I roughly started doing it. I wasn't good at math, so approximately I was giving 10%. And, and I really liked it, to be honest. Like, I liked the habit of giving. It felt liberating and transformative to give. I enjoyed it. And now that I have my own family, we kind of view 10% as the floor, not the ceiling, and we try to grow in generosity every year. But when it comes to giving, there was two things I learned early on, and see if this resonates with you. Uh, one, generosity is bigger than money. Like, some of us are very generous with our homes, whether we rent or own. We have people over constantly, friends and strangers. We host parties and meals and small groups. Our home is like a ministry outpost for the kingdom of God. People meet Jesus on our couches. We're generous with our homes. Or we're generous with our time, right? We show up for people. We, you know, befriend and train the, the junior colleague at work. Uh, we take on a student teacher. We coach a team. We pick up shifts for other people. We volunteer at church or elsewhere. Time's our most valuable commodity because once we spend it, we can't earn more of it. And some of us were so generous with our time. And that's beautiful. 
Some of us are generous with our words. We're always looking for ways to acknowledge people and honor them. We write notes and messages. Some of us are generous with our possessions, like we constantly lend stuff to others even when we don't get it back. Dan lent me his car so I could get to North Van right after this. He's very generous. John Mark Comer, myself, you're just lending. If you need a car, talk to Dan. <laughs> he will lend it to you. I remember as a youth leader uh, lending my electronic drum kit uh, to a high school student. And after months, I started asking for it back. And he was very hesitant to give it back. And when he did give it back, he gave it back in pieces, which explained the hesitancy. <laughs> but some of you, you're, you're 10 times more generous with the things you own. And there's so many ways to be generous. None of it should be overlooked. All of it should be celebrated. Generosity is bigger than money. Two, I learned early on that generosity, when it comes to money, can be scary. Like on one hand, it's hard to dismiss generosity as a value. Like if we were asked the question, do you want to be generous with your money or stingy with your money? Most of us would answer, I would like to be generous. Or is there a third option? And the answer is no, not today. But we, I think, I think we want to be thought of as generous. Like as a value, generosity is easy to embrace, but as a practice, it's a little more difficult, right? Like it, could, it can feel risky to give money away. What if I don't have enough? What if I lose my job? What if my rent is raised? What will the recession mean for me? What if God doesn't exist? My neighbor owns a brewery. He told me that people are not buying enough beer. It's hard to be a small business owner. Like it's easy to live in fear of tough times. And so I've learned that giving away money can feel scary. So generosity, it's bigger than money. And generosity, when it comes to money, can be scary, and I feel all of that. I also know this is a conversation littered with landmines. Like, I, I know some of us have had bad experiences, so my story is my story alone. Your story might be very different and have some real negative moments along the way. And I know I can't answer every question or address every scenario, and I wish I could. So I'm gonna invite you to be a generous listener and to fill in some of the gaps with charity. And I, I want to invite all of us to believe that when it comes to generosity, God doesn't need something from us. He's God. God doesn't even want something from us primarily. God wants something good for us. That there's deep joy on the other side of generosity. And so for the rest of our time, that was the intro, for the rest of our time, I want to give you three reasons why we invite you to give to the local church every Sunday. Not if you're exploring faith, not if you're visiting for the first time, not if you're just checking this place out, wondering what it's all about, but if you're, you're committed, if this is your church, I wanna give you three reasons why we invite you to give to God's work every week in kind of a low-key Canadian way, no passing of a plate, mumble a little bit, like there's a box in the back, that type of way. And so here's the first reason. We invite you to give because giving to God's work has been a part of worship throughout scripture and history. And so in the Old Testament, there is the concept of the tithe. And the word tithe means a tenth. 
in the Hebrew Bible. And in the book of Leviticus, the Israelites are commanded to give, quote, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees. It belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. End quote. So the Israelites were invited to give a tenth of everything they had to the Lord, whether it was grain or fruit or livestock. It was holy to the Lord. And in this case, holy means set apart. So the tithe was set apart for the purposes of God, for the worship of God. And Israelites couldn't tithe 5% or 7% because a tithe literally meant a tenth. And the tithe was always given off the top of their harvest, from the best of their herd, never the leftovers. As it says in the book of Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And the concept of first fruits in reference to the tithe meant what was first and best. The idea is God doesn't settle for leftovers. God's not meant to be an afterthought. God was meant to come first in the hearts of his people, and this was expressed in the concept of first fruits. Now, curiously, and listen, I did not hear this growing up in church, but Israel gave more than one tithe. They actually gave three different tithes. One tithe supported the priests and Levites. Another was given to provide for like a sacred festival every year. And a third tithe was given to support the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And so the priestly tithe and the festival tithe was given yearly. And the tithe for the poor was collected every three years. And then there were other ways in the community where through generosity, people would provide for the foreigner or the poor. And all in all, the Israelites were commanded to give somewhere between 20 to 25% of their wealth, scholars estimate. And so here's what we notice in the Old Testament. The tithe gave practical expression to the truth expressed by the psalmist. Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. Who do we owe for our existence? Well, our parents. Who do our parents owe for their existence? Their parents. Who do their parents? If you keep asking that question, eventually you arrive at God, the creator of all things, the first cause, uncaused being. And God didn't just create all things. God sustains all things. God holds all things together. We only toil and labor and strive with the strength, breath, and existence that God provides as an unearned, undeserved gift. And in that sense, God was never asking the Israelites to give 10 or 20% of their wealth. Instead, God was always allowing them to keep 80 to 90% of his wealth. Like, that's a huge reframe. Israel had never been owners. They had always been stewards. The question was never, what should we do with our wealth? It was instead, how should we best steward God's wealth? And this lesson was reinforced year after year, generation after generation, through the command of the tithe. I remember um, when my children were young, we used to go to Superstore. And at Superstore, they give out free cookies to the kids, not to the adults, which I believe is called ageism. But I, and I asked, and they never, they never would give it to me. Um, 
So, so uh, I would give the cookies to my kids, and the kids can't get the cookie unless there's an adult with them. Keep that in mind. And so I would give the cookies to the kids, and I would ask them for a bite. And sometimes my children, my flesh and blood, in my own image and likeness, would say, no, it's my cookie. And sometimes they say that even when I buy them the cookie in front of them. And I would have to explain to them that they would not be alive without me. <laughs> and the appropriate, reasonable response or expression of gratitude would be to give me a bite. And then to think, how generous, Dad, that you keep us alive. <laughs> and I was teaching them the logic of the tithe. And in fact, to this day, they still buy me presents with the money I give them. And I don't resent it. It pleases my heart that they thought of me. And it reminds me that all of our serving and giving is like that. Giving back to God what already belongs to him. Listen to King David in the book, First Chronicles, chapter 29. I love this prayer. And think of the spirit of this expression. He starts, he says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Think about how different that is than the spirit that says, who are you to ask me to give? He goes, who am I? That, who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have only given, or we have given you only what comes from your hand. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you, O Lord, the God of our fathers. Keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. It's beautiful. We're only giving back to you what you've given to us. Who am I that I'd be able to give so generously? Keep the desire for generosity always in the hearts of your people. And the tithe ingrained in God's people a posture of generosity toward the work of God in the tabernacle, the priesthood, the temple, as well as toward those who were poor and, and disadvantaged like the orphan and widow in that day. That was the Old Testament concept of the tithe. Now followers of Jesus are under the new covenant instituted through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And tithing's never really mentioned when believers are urged to give in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus mentions tithing once in a debate with the Pharisees, but that's all. The Apostle Paul mentions giving many times in his letters. There was a scenario where there was a famine in Jerusalem. A lot of God's people were in need, and so there was a collection that Paul was in charge of, of gathering, and so a lot of his letters are referencing that. But he doesn't mention the tithe when he's urging believers to give. And Christians debate this, but it's likely because the tithe was tied to the Old Testament law, the priesthood, and the land. And the law is fulfilled by Jesus, and the temple is a people filled with the Holy Spirit now, not a building, and the priesthood includes all believers now, not one tribe out of 12, and the land drops off the radar because it was a foreshadow of the new heavens and new earth, and God's people are from every tribe, tongue, and nation now. And so it kind of drops off. But what we do see in the New Testament is that followers of Jesus are urged to be radically generous people. People who, like the Israelites, support the work of ministry, which includes preaching the gospel, building the local church, supporting ministers, giving to the poor, responding to needs around them whenever possible. 
And I'll give you some examples of this type of language in the New Testament, various pictures. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13 to 14, oh, I'm feeling the music downstairs. I got to say, we just love it. I love when I hear the music downstairs because that means the kids are worshiping together and learning more about Jesus and getting truths about God artistically drilled into their hearts in a beautiful way. And so, and also I just feel like sometimes I need that, you know, like some, I just feel the beat. And anyways, so let me read this scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13 to 14, Paul says this, he says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? So referencing the Old Testament. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, Paul often didn't. He was a tent maker supporting himself, but he gives permission here. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 to 9, he talks about giving being done cheerfully and sacrificially with an eye to God's generosity and provision. Look at this beautiful language, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 9. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You also see that, that giving was meant to be done in response to the grace of God and the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus. That God left the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth to make you and I his treasure, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it. If God has been so generous to us, how can we not also be generous toward others, even those who haven't earned it or may not deserve it in our view? And so what you see in the New Testament is it doesn't focus on a specific amount, but on meeting needs, especially toward the poor and the work of ministry. And this sometimes included far more than the Old Testament tithe. Sometimes people sold possessions and homes and gave away the money to the community to meet needs. Sometimes people gave away huge amounts of wealth in response to meeting Jesus, more than 25%. Jesus invited one rich guy to give away all he had and to come follow him. Another time, he praised a poor widow who gave two cents. The generosity the New Testament calls for can't be dictated by a percent. For some people, 10% is way too little. Way too little. They don't even feel it. There's no sacrifice there. For others, 10% is this huge, scary stretch. And the grid of prayerful discernment is, what can I give joyfully? What can I give sacrificially? What can I give in response to all God has given to me? What can I give as an act of worship to the God who gave it all for me on the cross? Listen to this story. It's a Jesus story. Jesus sat down, this is in Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. 
Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on. She gave out of her poverty. And her generosity meant she had to trust God to provide her next meal. And Jesus tells his disciples, this poor widow has put in more than the rich. Technically, the rich gave more money. So to Jesus, more may have nothing to do with amount. More is not always about the amount of money in his eyes. More is about the amount of love. It's about the amount of trust. It's about the amount of sacrifice. And Jesus praises this widow. Our church supports an organization called Promise Vancouver on the downtown east side. And they do amazing work. They run after-school programs, summer camps. They hire youth from the area to work with the kids. It's just amazing. And uh, two years ago, when the church was starting, I attended one of their fundraisers. And so it was kind of the early days of the church. And this story's always stuck with me. I've even told it to some of you before. But during that night, one of the employees of Promise who goes to this church was sharing with a seven-year-old the vision of the night, including why they were raising funds. And as the boy listened to the purpose of the night, his eyes lit up. And he ran to his bag and emptied out all of his change and gave it up freely to support the ministry with so much joy. No compulsion, just joy. And I can imagine Jesus highlighting the little boy's contribution, maybe even saying the little boy gave more than the rest. Because more is not always amount of money, it's the amount of joy, the amount of trust, the amount of love. And so we invite you to give because God's people, young and old, rich and poor, have given all throughout scripture, scripture, all throughout history, and to this very day. That was the first point, it's by far the longest point, if you're wondering about the pacing of this message. (laughs) So point two is this, Uh, we invite you to give because giving reveals and reinforces where our treasure is is truly found. And so Jesus says this to his followers. Matthew 6, verse 19 to 22. I do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven. And our treasure in heaven is ultimately Jesus himself. It includes other things, but ultimately it's Jesus himself. And to make Jesus our treasure might sound like this. In my deepest heart, I'm not after success. I'm not after promotions. I'm not after a bigger, better house. I'm not after a higher paying job. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. I can pursue them. If you give them to me, I will be glad. But what I really want to know at the deepest part of my heart, my deepest desire is to know you because you are treasure enough. There is no one and nothing more valuable and more worthy of pursuit than you, Jesus. You're above it all. You're treasure enough. I read this story of a woman who who lost her mom. And at the memorial... 
she told this story. Growing up in their living room, they had this precious family heirloom. And it was this beautiful vase that was handed down from generation to generation. And as a young girl, you know, the vase was on the, the living room, like, what do you call that? Mantle? The mantle there. And as a young girl, she was playing in the living room, and she accidentally knocked over uh, the vase. And she knew how much it was worth. And she watched it fall in, like, slow motion. And it hit the floor and shattered into a dozen pieces. And knowing how valuable it was, like she'd been told, she just screamed at the top of her lungs. And her mom rushed into the room and looked her up and down and then said, oh, thank God. I thought you were hurt. And this woman, now an adult remembering her mom, said, that was the day I realized I was the family treasure. And some of us grew up not feeling that. But it says in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 15, can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I will not forget you, says the Lord. That the Lord treasures us. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, you are God's treasured possession. That's what you are. That's what we are. And we make Jesus our treasure because he first made us his. And nothing can separate us from his love. It's lasting. We're secure. But treasure on earth, it's so vulnerable and transient. It can be gone in a moment. It doesn't last. And that vulnerability can give birth to fear and anxiety. What if I lose this? I'll lose my reason for being. It can feed into this closed-fisted approach to life. I, I can't lose this. If I lose this, it's my reason for being. What will life have left for me? It's insecure, it's vulnerable, it doesn't last. Treasure in heaven does. And where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And I really believe that when we invest in God's kingdom through missions, or a local church, or a ministry that serves and empowers the poor, or liberates trafficked people, or confronts other forms of sexual violence and oppression, the more our heart is invested in things that matter to the heart of Jesus. Right? Our heart follows our money all the time. If you bet on the NBA Finals game coming up this afternoon, which you shouldn't, but if you did, you're, you would be more invested in the outcome. And so would your emotions and your attention. And the more we invest in things that reflect the heart of Jesus, the more our lives will naturally begin to reflect the character of Jesus. And giving to mission, giving to the local church, giving to God's kingdom, it puts our treasure in the right place. And this is a bit of a parenthesis, but it's understandable to think that, hey, if I give to the local church, then I won't give outside of the local church. And what about the need for clean drinking water or preventing human trafficking? What about disaster relief? What's curious, and I've really noticed this in my journey, and the stats bear this out, that if I give habitually to a local church, it's a formative practice. And giving regularly will unlock generosity in the rest of my life. It builds muscle memory. Every time I give, I'm telling myself. Every time there's an offering slide and I don't cringe, but I inwardly bless that, I'm telling myself, my money is not my own. My hands will not be closed. 
I care about what Jesus cares about in this world. I care about the bride he died for. I care about the people he loves so deeply that don't know about that love. And that generosity just spills over into the rest of my life. It shapes me into a certain type of person. And stats bear this out, that those who give regularly to a local church also give more money away to other organizations than the average population. Why? Because it's a formative practice. And generosity is me investing in the type of person I want to be. That generosity is not just me investing in others, it's an investment into who I want to be in the world and what I want to be about. End of parentheses. Point three, we invite you to give because habitual giving is good for us. And to be clear, uh, there's a religious way of giving that is not good. It's not good for us. Like a barter system. If we give to get or if we give as consumers instead of ministry creators, if we give to feel better for others, not better for others, better than others, if we give to prop up self-righteousness, that's religious giving, that's not good for us. But joyful, habitual giving is good for us. It creates joy, it's true, money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy happiness, but money can create happiness if, if, if you give it away as Simon Sinek has said. Studies have also shown that experiencing awe and beauty can lead us to being more generous people. I think awe and beauty pull us outside of ourselves. And so something about experiencing awe and beauty, it makes us more generous people. But here's what's amazing. Being a generous person also allows us to experience more beauty and awe. It's this wonderful feedback loop. Like think about this church, as imperfect as it is. In the last two years, we've seen Jesus finding people and people finding community and people encountering his love for the first time and people coming back to church and people having their hearts healed and shame being removed and lives being transformed, big and small acts of service. So much kindness, so much joy, so much beauty, awe and beauty that leads to generosity. But generosity also leads to more awe and beauty. And I experience that every Sunday, it feels like. Here's the last parentheses and then a conclusion. There are other great ways of being a church, right? Like the way is a way, but it's not the only way. I don't even know if I would say it's the best way. I would say it's the best that we can do given the vision God's put on our heart with the hope to continue to get better. But there are other ways to do church. And we shouldn't criticize other ways of doing and being the church. We need all different kinds of church expressions to reach and serve and love people. You can have a house church. A house church needs leadership, but maybe no staff to support it. Like, no overhead in the same way. If you do that, you could give 10% or more of your income entirely to those in need as a group. And none of it goes to heating a building. Or at least not the building you're meeting in. None of it will go to your overhead. Though some of it will go to the overhead of the organizations you're supporting. But pick a cause and go in for tens of thousands of dollars 
in your smaller community as a house church. I mean, that would be so, so good. That would be beautiful. But if you love a church like this, if you feel called to a church like this, if you love big vision and staff and alphas and freedom sessions and programming and resources and meeting in buildings, if you believe God is blessing it and people are meeting Jesus here and lives are getting transformed and that's why you're here and committed and called to this place, all of that takes generous support. There are other ways of doing church and I hope other expressions thrive. But if you're committed to this church, we invite you to give to this church. Don't hold out for the ideal church. Love and serve the real church you feel called to because giving is good for us. God doesn't need something from us. He's God. He wants something good for us. On the other side of generosity is deep and profound joy as you partner with the living God in your finances and see him come through in ways big and small. In the end, and James, you can come up because I'm closing. In the end, Jesus says we can't serve God and money. Money can take on such godlike properties in our lives. Money can become our security in the present and our hope for the future. Money can become God, but it's a fickle, transient God that will let us down. Money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. And the best way to get money out of our hearts is to give, us, give it out of our hands and see what God does. It's the best way of saying to myself and the world, money will not be my God. The stuff I own will not own me or shape who I'm becoming in the world. God, you can do that. And you will do that as I partner with you. Because it is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus said that. He said it's more blessed to give than receive. And so the response this morning, and you know what, why don't we stand? Because we're closing. The response to this morning is not to open your checkbook, if anyone anywhere has one of those. (laughs) It's not to sign up for online giving. Here's what I would love us to do. I want us to do something embodied, like bodily. I'd invite you to, or I'd invite us, to kind of close our hands in a fist. If we're all doing it, it's not very awkward. You can do it down, hands by your side. I just want you to like feel the tension in your hands and feel the fact that, oh man, I should trim my nails, like that kind of tension. And this is how we often feel. I mean, this is what fear does. This is what greed does. This is our default mode when life on planet Earth feels scary, and when we don't truly believe that there is a Father who is for us and provider. And I think what God wants to do this morning is to invite us to open our hands to Him again. Like a closed fist, it can't 
receive or give. But an open hand can do both. Receive a blessing and give a blessing. And so when you're ready, I want to invite you to open your hands to the Lord. And when you open your hands to the Lord, you're just inviting him afresh to have his way in every area of your life this morning, in every area of our collective lives. So as the team leads us, and when you're ready, I want to invite you to to open your hands and then come and receive communion. And when we receive communion, we remind ourselves that nothing we give, nothing we do can buy God's affection and favor. That he has already given us his affection and favor in Jesus. Communion reminds us of that. And when we come to the table, we remind ourselves of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. He left the treasure, the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth to make you and I his treasure. We remind ourselves of that at communion. Then we ask the question, how can I not also embrace an open-handed life in response to this God? And so let me pray for us. And those who are serving communion can come to the front. Father, thank you that everything comes from you that you are before all things and that in you all things hold together. The earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. But I also acknowledge how tempting it can feel to close our fists and to hold back areas of our lives from you. And we've all done it and Sadly, we'll do it again. But in this moment, I sense an invitation from you to once again step out in trust and to open our hands toward you, knowing that you are so good and you never ask us to leave anything behind without giving something better in its place, ultimately more of yourself more of your presence, more of your love, more of your peace, more of your joy. So help us know that and experience that again this morning. Help us be an open-handed people. Help us be a generous people in every aspect and nuance of that word. And I pray that In the mighty, awesome name of Jesus, amen.